Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken. And this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you didn't have anything better to do. That's right. Or if you had nothing better to do. Or something like that. It's only been six and a half years. How would you know? Uh, Before we start, you had a topic. Oh, yeah. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah, you're Um, It wasn't anything big. It was just I was listening to a podcast recently about, it was the early 90s, that Japanese exchange student that got shot. The Halloween Halloween. Yeah. He knocked on the door because they thought it was where that he and his friend thought it was where the party was. Right. The woman answered and then slammed the door in their face and told her husband to get his gun. And then he got his gun and opened the door and pointed it at the kid and said, freeze. And the Japanese kid who didn't speak English very well, didn't know what he meant. And so he got killed. She got shot. And then the guy went to trial for manslaughter and he was acquitted. But my thought was, I was listening to that is if somebody is walking away from your property, do you have a right to tell them to freeze and to point a gun at them and tell them to stop? You have a right to tell them anything you want to tell them. But once all that happens and then you shoot them, that's another story. I'd like well, to know what the legal arguments were that got him acquitted. Well, he was in fear of his life, I, to, yeah. uh, supposedly. I knew more about that story when it first happened. I did too, but that was just the thing that struck me as like, why do you think you can tell somebody what to do? He's not doing anything. You know what I mean? It's just wow. like people who, you know, the Karen people who, yeah, you know, some guy is trimming his grass in his yard and she comes by and says, do you live here? Are you supposed to be doing that? Yeah. I mean, or not to put up colored Christmas lights. But it's like, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I didn't really have a point. I was just like, is it your right to say? You have a right to say anything. Yeah, I know. You I know mean, what I-, I mean? It's not what you say. It's whether your actions are supportable. I can say anything to anybody I want who comes into my yard. I have a right to. Yeah. And the prosecution was like, well, the door had already been shut and they were walking away. Right. It's ridiculous. It's, I don't mean to get all semantical about it, but I think the biggest issue is with the jury that bought whatever the bullshit argument was. Well, I think it was so, you know, no offense to our men. I was going to say, I thought it was and I might be wrong. Yeah, that might have been another one. We had another quick topic that, that's relative to my episode tonight. Yeah. The elephant in the room. Now you're supposed to make an elephant in the room joke. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh, I know. Fat. We're all too tired. Yeah. <laughs> fat. No, my episode tonight has been in the news, particularly here in New England and the Boston Globe, the Boston media for weeks. And of mm-hmm. course, it brings up the inevitable white woman syndrome. Mm-hmm. And we both agree that's a thing. We recognize and white children syndrome too. Mm-hmm. But there are some stories that that just, I mean, if you look at it from a media point of view, it doesn't matter what the color of the people are. It's just a good story. And the issue you and I were talking about is not that every time a story like this comes up, people should complain. I think domestic homicide and domestic violence should get as much media attention as they can. It's that people have to start doing the other stories too. Yeah. You can write a column bitching about how 
nobody's covering women of color missing and being murdered, but you're the one that works in the media and you're the one that has an editor you can go to and say, hey, I really want to cover some of these stories. Although we don't know, especially at a paper like the Boston Globe, what the columnist's role is and if they can. but But that said, it's, um, and a lot has to do with the information the police give the media. If the police don't tell you that someone is missing, where do people think newspapers get their information? The other thing is people always use Gabby Petito as an example. And there were many elements of that that made it the viral story it was. Mm -hmm. And anytime you have an almost obviously guilty husband or partner who's acting in specific ways, who, who drives all the way across the country in the van without her in it and stuff, it's going to be a big story. She, you know, she was on social media. There were, there were lots of visuals to go with it. There yes. Was, so there are things that make a story that aren't just, oh, here's a cute white woman. I mean, it helps that she was a cute white woman. Yes. And tonight's story is kind of the same. And there is some prejudice, and I'll talk a little bit about it, about the victim too, but it's not that, oh, we shouldn't be doing this story. It's that if you have a story about a woman of color, make sure it's done and it gets out there and people yeah. should look for them. Yes, I understand the argument and I agree with it. But I also feel like you can sit there when the people who are bitching about it are also in a position where they right. can. Well, even in that column you referenced that was in the Boston Globe, because there's a Latina woman who disappeared but there's not a lot of information available and today the boston globe actually had like about two or three paragraphs about it they could do more of a story it seems like there's a lot of talking about white women's syndrome but not a lot of people going out and digging up the stories Mm -hmm. about the women of color and as you'll see with tonight's story this is a story that should get attention I think domestic homicide and domestic violence needs to be reported and needs to be recognized and stop being minimized. And I would never say don't do a story on someone, but do a story on more people. Yes, exactly. Yes, I agree. My sources for the story are largely court documents and affidavits. When I get information from a news source, I'll cite it, but most of the news sources covering this are using the same court documents. Some are yeah. using them better than others. There's Going a lot of, to the source. There's a lot of crazy misinformation out there. Mm. Because the story has a lot of different aspects, I'm doing something a little different. Though You're going to act it out? And- yes, I am. Even though this is one episode, I'm splitting it into three chapters. Okay. It helped me organize it while I was writing it. And maybe it'll help listeners, especially if they're not going to listen to the whole thing in one sinning so want to get started yes okay chapter one where is anna (gasps) in september 2021 as he awaited sentencing by a federal district court judge on fraud and other charges brian walsh wrote to the judge i have created a contract for myself quote i am an honest courageous loving leader unquote i repeat this contract to myself on a daily basis (laughs) Sorry. I train every day on 100% integrity, 100% of the time. Sounds good, right? But in the end, it was just another con. A little more than a year after that, New Year's Eve 2022, at the home of Brian and Anna Walsh in Cohasset, Massachusetts, everything seemed fine, according to Jem Mutlu, a friend who celebrated the New Year with the couple. 
Anna had worked with Mutlu, owner of the Mutlu Group Real Estate Brokerage, for a couple of years before taking a new job in February 2022. The night was festive with an elaborate meal, Mutlu told the media. He said, there was a lot of looking forward to the new year. There was no indication of anything other than celebrating the new year. Problems on hold. He said Anna sat on a bar stool in the kitchen texting friends during the meal and throughout the evening, which sounds a little rude to me. <laughs> but maybe there was something lost in the translation between what Mutlu told reporters and what they wrote. During the celebration, the trio signed a cardboard box that the champagne had come in with a red Sharpie to commemorate the night. Someone wrote, Gem, Anna, Brian, 2023, exclamation point. Ooh. Anna wrote, Wow, 2022, what a year. And yet we are still here and together. Let's make 2023 the best one yet. We are the authors of our lives. Courage, love, perseverance, compassion, and joy. Love, Anna. Mm. While the Daily Mail described Anna's note as eerie, Mm. and the New York Post described it as both eerie and ominous, (laughs) I look at it as an optimistic message from a very optimistic person who's trying very, very hard to make the best of things after some tough times and probably seeing more down the road. At 1.30 a.m., Mutlu gave Anna a hug goodbye and left. He's reportedly the last person, aside from her husband, to see her since. Brian told police that Anna woke him up around 6 a.m. on January 1st to tell him there was a work emergency and she was flying to Washington, D.C., where her job was. For the past 11 months, she'd been flying to D.C. during the week and coming home on weekends. She was originally due to go back on January 3rd. But in the early morning of January 1st, Brian says Anna left using a taxi or ride share. Around noon on January 4th, a man who identified himself as head of security at Tishman Spire in Washington, D.C., where Anna worked, called Cohasset police and asked them to make a wellness check on her. She was supposed to be back in D.C. that morning for a meeting, and no one at the company had heard from her since December 30th when she'd left to go back to Massachusetts, and they couldn't reach her. The man said that someone at the company had talked to Brian before they called police that day. It's not clear what Brian told them, but the police wrote in the report, company has contacted the husband. He has not filed a missing person report on the Hmm. female. Security office knows nothing about the female. No reason to think she is in danger or ill. It seems from that the police didn't immediately go check on Anna. It's not clear. But sometime that day, after the Tishman Spire security chief talked to Cohasset police, Brian called police to make a missing person report. Yeah, I bet he did. Yeah. Police arrived at the Cohasset house at 6.35 p.m. to talk to Brian. Walsh told police that Anna had a busy job and sometimes didn't call for a few days when she was in D.C. I find that hard to believe that a mother with children ages two, four, and six wouldn't call to talk to or check on them for days on end. I know. As if. A couple of weeks later, Brian's attorney, Tracy Minor, said Brian had called Anna's workplace in D.C. before the workplace called police on January 4th because he hadn't heard from her. And then he filed the missing person report. If this is true, and like so much of what Brian Walsh says, you'll see it's likely not. He didn't tell police that on January 4th, and the security chief from Tishman Spire also didn't tell police. Cohasset police could find no sign that Anna had taken a ride share early on the morning of January 1st, or any record that she flew out of Boston's Logan Airport that morning. They did find a record of her January 3rd ticket purchase, but she'd never boarded the plane. 
Washington, D.C. police searched her townhouse there and her car there for signs of her, but it was obvious to them no one had been there for a while. Obviously, suspicion immediately turned to Brian Walsh. Well, it did with us. Well, I think it did with the police. They said there was no danger to the public and he was cooperating, but you'll see, you know, they don't tell us everything Mm. right away. I try not to read online comments on articles, but one on an article for this story caught my eye. It went something like, gee, things are trickling out about Brian Walsh, but why did he kill her? Was she having an affair with the friend who visited on New Year's Eve? And I believe the word friend was in quotes. In that oh, jeez. But that comment is a microcosm of everything that's wrong with domestic violence, homicide stories, and people's assumptions. The short answer to his question? No, not even close. The long answer? Well, sit back and buckle up, folks. <laughs> it's going to be a bumpy ride. Anna Lubchik Nip was born in Belgrade, Serbia, and earned a bachelor's degree in French language and literature from the University of Belgrade. And that's the one big difference between Belgrade, Maine, and Belgrade, Serbia, that um, we don't have a university in Belgrade, Maine. That's the big difference. That's the big difference. She came to the United States in 2005. Her first job in the U.S. was as a housekeeping attendant, then a server at the Inn at Little Washington in Little Washington, Virginia. She moved to New York City for a while, and then in 2007, she got a job as reservations manager for the Wheatley Hotel in Lenox, Massachusetts. Lenox is in the heart of the Berkshires in western Massachusetts, and though the area is considered less cosmopolitan than Boston, it's also a scenic rural playground for Boston and New York Mm -hmm. metro areas wealthiest. Like Rachel Maddow. Yeah. The Wheatley is a high-end luxury hotel in a former mansion that was built as a summer home in 1893 by New York banker and railroad millionaire Henry H. Cook. Anna married a chef at the hotel in 2008, the same year she met Brian there. Some accounts say she met Brian while cleaning his room, and that's attributed to her mother as told to a Serbian newspaper. I highly doubt that since she was reservations manager. My guess is they met while she was booking his room, And something was lost in the translation, but that's yet another thing that has been repeated in many articles. Anna later described her meeting with Brian as love at first sight. In 2021, she posted on Facebook, if it's to be, it's up to me. And while that's a philosophy that will get you ahead, it's also one that's so true of so many of the women whose lives end the way Anna seemingly has. They are working with everything they possibly can to make a family and a good life but they're doing it with a guy whose ambitions are of a whole different dimension and bring it all to ruin no matter how hard the woman works. But in 2008, when Anna met Brian, that was still in the future. In 2010, she got a master's in hospitality management from Cornell, as well as a job as assistant front office manager for the Willard Intercontinental Hotel in Washington, D.C. Like the Wheatley, the Willard is a luxury hotel with a historic past. It dates back to 1818 and is where heads of state often stay when visiting Washington. No, Anna wasn't getting jobs at the Motel 6 or even the Radisson or the Marriott. She was going for the big time. Yeah, you know, it strikes me that she must have been a very hard worker and very ambitious Yes, to go as quickly. And ambitious in a good and, way. Yes, in a good way. She obviously... Well, in fact... She was hardworking, smart, and focused. She was also multilingual, Mm -hmm. confident, attractive, intelligent, friendly, and poised. 
She knew how to read a room and how to relate to people. Many of the attributes necessary to make it in the very tough high-end hospitality industry world. She became front desk manager in 2012 and front office operations manager in 2013. Anna's friend, Pamela Barty, told the Daily Mail, Anna was always pretty much the breadwinner of the family. Her brilliance far exceeded everything. She can walk into any room and make friends everywhere. That's just who she is. When she moved to D.C., I knew she would mold pretty much wherever she was. She was built to be successful. Wow. Anna had a long-distance relationship with Brian through those Ugh. years, getting a divorce from her husband, who'd been a chef at the Wheatley in 2014, but I think they were separated. I don't think the marriage was on. I could find no information about the marriage, and I even wondered if it was a citizenship situation, because she is an American citizen. That same year, she reported to Washington, D.C. police that someone, it was Brian, though reports at the time didn't say who, had threatened to kill her and a friend. She withdrew the complaint before it could be prosecuted. Many stories say she refused to cooperate with prosecution, but I think we all are savvy enough to know how these things go. Mm. Like many smart, hardworking women, she had a weak spot. Sure, Brian had his issues, but she chalked that up to his dysfunctional family, and she was sure <laughs> that unconditional love and giving him a real family structure would come. Yes! It's all he needed was a little That's love. all he needed. Anna and Brian got engaged in 2015 and she moved to Boston where he lived, transferring to the Intercontinental Hotel there where she was front office director. They got married at Emanuel Church in Boston, December 15, 2015. Alyssa Kirby, a Washington DC friend told Fox 25 in Boston that it had been love at first sight for Anna and that, <sighs> hadn't, cha and that hadn't changed. She always described him as her best friend, Kirby said. And what did he do for a living? Well, you will was... find out. Okay, 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 okay. Sorry. In 2017, Anna became front office director at the Taj Boston on Newberry Street, another high-end hotel. In 2020, she switched to big-time real estate, taking a job as operations director for the Mutlu Group in Boston, owned by Jim Mutlu, the friend who um, was there on New Year's Eve. He would become a close friend of both her and Brian. She worked there until February 2022 when she took the job with Tishman Spire, a real estate development and management company based in Washington, D.C. Because, for reasons I'll explain as we go on, Brian couldn't join her in D.C. He stayed in Cohasset and took care of the kids, who at the time were between one and five years old. Anna sold their Cohasset home for $1.3 million. Mm. They bought it for $800,000 a few years before, or mm. she had, rather, and bought a really mm. nice townhouse in Washington, D.C. for around the same price. Mm. She wanted to live in Washington. She and Brian rented a house for him and the kids to live in in Cohasset. There are some stories online painting Anna as a cutthroat and less than mm. honest broker and property manager. And yes, there are issues with tenants groups and others in Washington, D.C., but I know from years covering property management and development as a journalist, a lot of that goes with the territory. It's a complicated business with a lot of moving parts and a lot of money involved. Some of these stories feel the need to mention her, quote, heavy Eastern European accent. Mm. And I definitely think prejudice Americans have about people from that section of the world comes into play. I won't repeat the tropes. I'll just leave it at that. Well, I will say that I had a customer from, um, I'm not sure what country, but Eastern right. Europe or Russia, who had that 
typical Russian accent. She was a very, very nice woman, about the same age as me, very good looking, attractive woman. She was always nice, but people I worked with were like, oh, that dragon lady was in and stuff right. like that. And but I think one not. way is they, in a, they have an assertive way of acting and women, not men, but women who act that way, particularly if they have an accent, are considered and also i think just growing up and watching tv shows where the enemy natasha yeah boris Boris in in any case as 2022 became 2023 anna walsh was living a stressed but professionally successful life posting optimistic memes on social media as was her habit and giving friends no sign anything was amiss chapter two brian walsh and his many victims Brian Walsh was born January 1st or 31st, depending on which affidavit you believe, Mm. 1975, the only Mm. child of Thomas and Diana Walsh. Thomas Walsh headed the general neurology division at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, which is now named in his honor after his death in 2018. A tribute page by the hospital says, Dr. Walsh had many professional interests. Early on, he authored a book on geriatric neurology. He was also interested in stroke and in the management of chronic neurologic disease. He taught a neuroanatomy course at Harvard Medical School and was a member of the curriculum committee for the neuroscience course. He later developed an interest in ancient Greece and pursued a sabbatical year in Greek studies at the University of California, Berkeley. He authored several original translations of old manuscripts and published a book in 2015 on neurologic concepts in ancient Greece. Later in life, he became an accomplished artist. Now, I know this episode is not about Thomas Walsh, but about his son, Brian, and daughter-in-law, Anna, but Thomas Walsh plays a big part. You'll read in some media that Brian's parents split up because Thomas Walsh liked to party or something Mm. to that effect, and his mother was obsessive or some other crazy thing, but that's a total misrepresentation. Thomas and Diana Walsh did split up in 1983, not 2004, as some accounts have, when Brian was eight. Thomas Walsh, I think, was gay, though no one comes out and says it, and also wasn't interested in a life with a wife and kids, particularly since life at home was dysfunctional and hostile, friends said later. Brian's mother, Diana Zarentash, was her maiden name, was born in Tirana, Iran, and her family at some point immigrated to the U.S. and settled in Virginia. A Boston Globe story says she was educated in science and engineering, came from a family with generational wealth, but doesn't give any specifics, and it was very hard to find information. She and Thomas Walsh were married in Lynchburg, Virginia in 1971. She was listed as a homemaker on a property history for a home on Beacon Hill, one of Boston's Mm. most exclusive neighborhoods. After she split from Thomas Walsh, she, her parents, and other family members lived in a 6,383-square-foot, five-bedroom, six-bathroom home, at 225 Beacon Street. Wow. And that is one big motherfucking house to be in the middle of Boston. And Beacon Beacon Hill, for people that don't know, they're old brick, they're they're townhouses, and you're going up these little Right, little cobblestone streets. But anyway, this is likely the house Brian Walsh grew up in. Diana's mother apparently attempted suicide after the death of one of Diana's brothers in 1975. This is from a court document in which Thomas Walsh in 1977 was trying to get out of a two-year commitment to the Navy by applying as a conscientious objector. 
So the details are a little hazy. Hmm. And he says that that episode is what helped make him become a conscientious objector. And yes, it does sound like an interesting story. And it is, (laughs) but it's one for another day. And I had actually written it up and maybe I'll put it on our website so people can read what I wrote about it there. There are some other court documents online that look like a brother of Diana's may have been charged with some fraudulent dealings in the 1980s, a case that was still dragging on more than a decade later, but I can't confirm it as her family, though the names are the same. It doesn't give a last name for the sister and calls her Diane instead of Diana, but the person, the last name is Zarentash. I don't know how common in a name for Iranians. The brother whose first name I can't remember, but is called Shane is called in the document, but I didn't want to go into the details of that, not being sure it was the family. But yeah, here I am talking about it. (laughs) Brian told people he and his father became estranged after the divorce when Brian was eight, but that's simply not true. Like so much that he says it's part of his con and so little of what he says can be believed. And if you think I'm being hard on Brian, just keep listening. Mm. Brian showed from a young age he liked the trappings of wealth. A friend told the Boston Globe that when Walsh was a teenager, he'd sometimes sit in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Boston, dressed in a suit and tie, sipping Cokes and mingling with the city's power brokers. Quote, he was obsessed with the finer things in life. He was well-informed. He was charming. He prided Mm. himself on being sophisticated, the friend said. Brian attended private school in Rhode Island. None of the stories say which one. Someone later says in a court document that he could never stay in one school, so it's possible he attended several. I can't find any reference to when he graduated or any alumni notes that have him in, and Rhode Island doesn't have a ton of exclusive private schools, but I can't find him. He did graduate, though, because he attended Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh for one year, then left, checking himself into Austin Riggs, which is a luxury mental health hospital in Stockbridge, Mm. Massachusetts, very close to Lenox, where Brian would meet Anna 15 years later. Some accounts say Walsh was a resident of Austin Riggs for 12 or more years, or that he was discharged just a few years ago. Neither of those things are true, even though the accounts that say that use court documents as attribution. I found the court documents and read them extensively, and that just isn't correct. It's another thing somebody got wrong and other articles keep repeating. I'm just saying that so people don't wonder if my info is wrong, if they're reading that stuff. A longtime close friend of Tom Walsh's, Jeffrey Ornstein, said in an affidavit that Bryant was a long-term patient, but it was not years that he was a patient. It was a matter of months or possibly weeks. He got kicked out when his parents disagreed over who would pay for it, and the money ran out. Austin Riggs later had to sue his parents for payment. Ornstein also said Brian Walsh had been diagnosed as a sociopath. Mm. I don't doubt that at all, and it's a term many people who know him use to describe him. Some articles imply he was being treated for that at Austin Riggs, but that's not something you get treatment for either long-term or short-term. It's not a mental illness. There is no sign he had a significant mental illness that required long-term institutional care. Long-term institutional care is for very severe mental illness it's not anything he's exhibited the only place it has come up is in some court documents by people trying to keep him out of jail (laughs) brian's wife anna and her family would later say he had depression and had suffered emotional abuse as a child this is possibly true or not people will say a lot of things in court documents when they are trying to save someone's ass and keep their family plus who hasn't come on right more on that in a while 
just so people aren't confused, psychopathy, which is also possibly, even though he was diagnosed as a sociopath, and sociopathy are personality disorders, not mental illnesses. Yes. Uh, they aren't cured with treatment. They're a lifetime issue. People, depending on their level of them, can adjust their behavior if they're given the right incentives. But generally, those personality disorders are inclined to change the way they behave. Well, it's kind of hard when the problem is something that you have to want to change. Right. right. Narcissism is a big part of that. And narcissists (laughs) don't want to change. One thing that makes it obvious Brian wasn't in Austin Riggs for 12 years or even a few years was an April 1997 item in the police log of the Bridgewater, New Jersey Courier News. Brian R. Walsh, 22 of Boston, was charged early Friday with driving with a suspended license. So obviously he was not, you know. A court document also refers to his opportunities to attend, in quotes, the University of Massachusetts Northeastern University and the JFK School of Government at Harvard University. It's not clear if he attended them after the year at Carnegie Mellon and the state Austin Riggs. It's worded weirdly yeah, because that's a weird way to say court documents are, you can never really tell. He got what you might call his big break when he worked as a personal concierge for a wealthy family, traveling the world to carry out jewelry and art purchases, which led him to be oh. calling himself an international art dealer. Yeah. He appears in the Boston Globe twice before his very public legal troubles began, both in those cutesy stories known as puff pieces or blowjobs, where reporters (laughs) in the pre-social media days struggled to find people to get quotes from and often relied on colleagues or friends in the business world to throw them someone to call. One is a July 2009 piece about cell phone use and the fact people are getting away from using voicemail. There's a paragraph about Brian. Brian Walsh, 32, a Boston-based international art dealer, keeps his phone's mailbox full to ward off new messages. The maneuver annoys those who want to reach him, but he estimates it saves him 30 minutes a day. People complain, he said. Everyone likes to leave a message. Well, it doesn't seem like much. This That's short, stupid. This short me- well, it's one of those stupid stories. I know. You know. Uh, this short mention tells us how Brian wants to make sure everyone knows how successful and important he is. Well, he's described as an international art dealer. I could find using newspapers.com. No legitimate art dealer related stuff about him also either by mistake or design his age is wrong it should be 34 not 32 in a november 2015 article recommending places for power lunches at the city's high-end restaurants he was given one sentence also considered dexave i i I don't know how to pronounce it dexave (laughs) d-e-a-u x-a-v-e and that's a very very fancy probably one of boston's fanciest most elite restaurants, French restaurant. And then in parentheses, it says a favorite of art dealer, Brian Walsh, who once bought every ounce of the restaurant's white truffles and every wine, As from, if. And every wine from his birth year during dinner. I seriously doubt that. And okay. if you're only passingly familiar with the story of Brian, I, I doubt it too. In fact, I'm sure he somehow conned them out of it, ripped it off or was just lying. Right. If you're only yeah. passingly familiar with the story of Brian Walsh and disappearance of his wife, Anna, you may have heard that Brian was charged with fraud for selling two fake Andy Warhol paintings for $80,000. That seems to be the line everybody throws in a story. But that's like saying the Titanic took on a little water after it encountered <laughs> Brian's life of fraud, 
at least the part of it that's documented, is long entangled and goes back more than two decades and involves millions of dollars in cash, art, property, and more, and started way before the Warhol job. Ooh. As I said earlier, some media is taking at face value his claim that he and his father became estranged when he was eight and his parents split up. Actually, his father supported him and ultimately was Brian's first big con. Uh. In the late 90s, early 2000s, I couldn't nail it down, as Brian struggled to find something to do with his life, his father decided to help him out. Brian had taken over the deed and mortgage payments of a rundown house in Lenox. It's not clear how. My guess is it was another con. Thomas Walsh told Brian he'd pay for renovations and they could flip the house. When it was sold, Thomas Walsh would get his money back with no extra, and Brian could take the rest of the profits and build a business using them. When all was said and done, Tom Walsh was due more than $800,000. On the night of the closing, he and Brian spoke on the phone because Lennox is all the way across Massachusetts from Boston, so Tom wasn't there. And Brian said he'd mail Tom a check. Uh-huh. Instead, Brian took off with the money and the pair didn't communicate for more than a decade. Some other documented frauds by Brian, though certainly not all of them include a college friend, probably a former friend, told the FBI that Walsh borrowed $500,000 and never paid it back. Friends told the FBI Walsh would attend elaborate, expensive dinners and ask friends to pay for them. And I'm sure any of those who are still around enjoyed the truffles and wine note in the Globe. One of those friends said he gave Walsh an email account from his company, and Walsh used it to claim he was the CEO. (laughs) Something that got the friend, probably again now a former friend, in hot water with the real CEO. Lucky he didn't get fired. When someone sent a check to the former owner of a condominium in Lynn, Massachusetts, Walsh had just bought, instead of forwarding the check to the former owner, Walsh cashed it and kept the money. And the man could not reach him, even though Brian <laughs> was living in that house to get his money. Brian was charged with theft in 2013 for depositing more than $32,000 in bad checks. It was continued without a finding, meaning if he was found guilty of a similar offense, he could be sentenced. Most of that was business as usual for Brian Walsh, and odds are there are many other incidents like that that we don't know about. His capstone fraud project, though, was the fake Andy Warhol deal, a fraud that took place over several years and cost many people a lot of money. When I said earlier that the common narrative he was charged with fraud for selling two fake Andy Warhol paintings for $80,000 is a total understatement, I wasn't just talking about his entire body of work, but I was also talking about the Warhol job itself. Acting U.S. Attorney Nate Mandel wrote in a court document a decade later, the defendant's conduct was based on a pattern of lies, deceit, and fraud. The defendant orchestrated a multi-year, multifaceted scheme to defraud multiple people, unquote. It began in 2011 when Walsh visited his former Carnegie Mellon roommate in South Korea with the specific aim to rip him off. The the friend's family owned three Andy Warhol paintings and Uh. wanted to sell them. Two in Warhol's Shadows series and Dollar Sign, and the name of the paintings is actually a dollar sign, as well as two prints by Keith Haring and a Chinese statuette. The Warhols and other art was real. The family bought the shadows from a dealer for $250,000, and they had been certified by the Andy Warhol Authentication Board with the foundation number stamped on the back, as well as provenance from the German dealer that they had bought him from. On March 29th, 2011, Walsh wrote in his diary, went to Usland, saw victim two, 
and he had the real names, but that's what he, this guy's called in the court documents. Victim. So say gonna, he wrote that in the no, <laughs> So I'm going to call him victim two. That's why I'm explaining it. Okay. Had nice BBQ. Then we took all the art from Uslin and drove to Seoul. Got zero sleep. They want to sell all the art. Let's see what happens. I will make this deal work. They have stuff that is good. Victim two and his family are all about themselves. Makes it easy for me to do them up. Whatever. They can eat it unquote so he kept a diary yes and the mm-hmm. fbi got a part of its investigation because he's a little narcissistic on march mm-hmm. 30th he wrote i have a plan for the art need to get off with some of the good pieces hope i can make it through this one is going to be bumpy unquote later that day he wrote <laughs> if, that if the friend knew something was up he wasn't showing it and he kind of comments on the friend being a little dim on april 5th 2011 he wrote being in korea is making me crazy I could have done something fun. If I don't make money on this deal, I will be pissed. I need to sell the shadows. I will take all the money. He got the painting. I, I'm sorry, I'm laughing. It's just like <laughs> writing a diary. I don't understand. Maybe he was thinking of writing a book later oh, or something. Be. I don't, I don't I know. know. He got the paintings from victim two and brought them home to New York with him where he consigned the shadows and the dollar sign to Christie's auction house. And consigning is where they take them. And if they sell, they get a percentage and you get the money. Mm-hmm. These were still the genuine paintings, which he planned to sell and not give victim to the money, but just keep it. Dollar sign sold for only $40,000. And Walsh withdrew the shadows after Christie's told him he had to reframe them. Walsh requested authentication paperwork for the herring piece, but Christie's refused to give it to him. But he got documents he later used to fake provenance. He brought shadows to the Gagosian Gallery in New York, but the gallery didn't want to deal with him because they found him a little dodgy. Still, he managed to get a document from the gallery that he modified to also later use as provenance on fake art. He didn't tell victim two he'd sold dollar sign and didn't give him any of the money he made from it. He also Hmm. didn't tell him he'd attempted to sell the shadows paintings. Sometime that year, Walsh had a guy the FBI and court docs call Forger One, create fake shadows paintings Hmm. walsh told forger one he needed the fakes for insurance purposes for the real paintings and i don't know how that works i don't know if that's a thing where if you have real paintings you get fake ones painted how much money you make as a forger i don't know forger one was a new york artist who specialized in replicas in fact he signed his own name to the fake warhols on january 30th 2012 walsh wrote in his diary didn't see victim two or pick up the art. Stole his AP watch. Don't know why I'm so upset <laughs> with victim two. He's a disaster, unquote. The watch, investigators determined, was an Audemars Peugeot, a high-end Swiss watch. On February 4th, 2012, Walsh wrote, put the watch on eBay. On Monday, I will go to the store to see if I can get $16,000. It's a $22,000 watch, at least. On February 9th, he wrote, sold watch for twelve k. On June 28th, 2012, he wrote, tough day. Victim two wanted his art back. Remember, at this point, he'd already sold dollar sign. God knows where shadows are. On July 9th, 2012, Walsh wrote, I have spent a fortune in major trouble. Need to sell the herring. What is taking the bitch so long? Unquote. Hmm. Walsh ignored text calls and emails from victim two, who was trying to get his art back at this point. This went on for nearly two years. In February 2014, a mutual friend attempted to intervene on victim two's behalf, but Walsh repeatedly put him off. 
The friend finally sent another friend to Walsh's Beacon Hill house to get the art, and Walsh gave the herrings and Chinese statuette to the guy. Walsh told the guy he still had the shadows and dollar sign, which were lies, but didn't give them back when the friend asked for them. At one point, point the friend, the intermediary friend, emailed, I guess you're busy, but I am beginning to wonder what victim two really meant to you. I don't see any good reason why you have set aside finding out what he's going through. What's more important than this? Unquote. Oh. Apparently the guy didn't realize he was dealing Duh. with a sociopath. In September 2015, Walsh entered into a contract with victim three, a Paris art consultant to sell the two shadows and sent photos of the Warhol Foundation numbers on the back and provided the documents that victim two had given him for provenance. A couple weeks later, Walsh persuaded his dentist, known in court documents as victim four, to contribute $23,000 so the two together could buy dollar sign at a discount. And he said he had a buyer who pay market price. And so they make a profit. Since he'd sold dollar sign four years earlier, Walsh had no intention of buying it back or anything else or selling one. He just wanted to rip victim four off and had documents that looked like he. Oh my God. Victim four gave Walsh a check for $23,000, which Walsh deposited in a new bank account on November 2nd, 2015. On November 3rd, Walsh flew to France, met with victim three and delivered two shadows paintings. Victim three wired $145,000 into Walsh's bank account. The thing was, they were the forgeries that forger one had painted. That same month, Walsh also offered to sell shadows to his dentist, victim four. The dentist didn't want shadows. (laughs) So the dentist repeatedly asked Walsh when he was going to sell dollars. I want the friggin' money. But Walsh said he didn't have a buyer yet. And this was after he convinced the guy to give him the $23,000 because he said he had a buyer lined up. In February 2016, Walsh enlisted a new forger called Forger Two in court. That was me. Yeah. Yeah. And had her never paid me. And had her make a new fake set See? of shadows, saying again they were for insurance purposes. He gave her photographs for the copies rather than the real shadows. <laughs> and investigators speculated that he no longer had the real shadows, although they've never been able to find out what happened. I suspect it would be hard to make a good forgery if you don't have the original. Right. To look yeah, at. He gave her photos. After he had the two fakes in November 2016, Walsh attempted to sell them on eBay using Anna's account for a hundred thousand dollars he said they were from his private collection and he had to sell them it cheaper their market value was at least a quarter of a million dollars together but they were having financial problems and he had to sell them he included photographs of the paintings and documents he had from victim to his provenance as well as the warhol foundation numbers and all the stuff enter victim one victim one <laughs> an art dealer in california named ron rivlin specializing in Warhol art, contacted Walsh about the shadows. On November 3rd, after some negotiating, they agreed to $80,000 for the two paintings. Walsh convinced Rivlin to pay in cash for the shadows. At Walsh's request, (laughs) they they agreed they would not use PayPal, which serves as eBay's escrow service, but Rivlin would pay with a certified check instead. They signed a contract on DocuSign, an internet service, you know, that you can officially sign stuff. The contract included a three-day right of rescission. Immediately upon signing, Walsh asked Rivlin if he wanted to buy three more Warhols. Rivlin declined. Rivlin's assistant, identified as witness one in court documents, got on a plane from LA to Boston and met Walsh at the Four Seasons on November 7th to pick up the two shadows. She gave him a certified check for $80,000. Walsh gave her the paintings. 
While the eBay photos had showed the back with the provenance stickers from the German gallery that Victim 2's family had bought the paintings from and the Warhol Foundation numbers and everything, so the photos had been of the backs of the real shadows, Welsh had put the Ford shadows in frames that were screwed shut so the backs couldn't be seen. Mm. Witness 1 took photos of the front, you know, with her cell phone and texted them to Rivlin. He told her, fine, take the paintings. So she did and got on a plane back to L.A. Walsh immediately <laughs> that day deposited the cashier's check into his account, spending yeah, much of did. it as soon as it was available. Most of it went to pay credit card debt, and he withdrew $8,000 in cash. Rivlin knew immediately upon seeing the paintings that they were fakes. He took them out of their frames and turned them over, and sure enough, there were no Warhol Foundation stamps or any other provenance markings. He tried to call, text, and email Walsh, who didn't respond. He then contacted Walsh's mother and got no help there. And then he called Anna Walsh at her job. Brian Walsh uncharacteristically eventually got back to Rivlin. I'm wondering if it's because the guy called Anna. Walsh Uh agreed to return his money if he could have the paintings back. But then he didn't return the money. Of course he didn't. He told Rivlin when Rivlin followed up that, yeah, he was going to return the money, but he couldn't just yet because, wait for it, Anyone familiar with romance scams knows this one. (laughs) He was waiting for an incoming wire or having trouble with the bank, depending on which time Rivlin... Just like the Tinder swindler. Of course, the FBI later found there was no incoming wire, and the only issue with Walsh's bank is that there was no money in his account except for some scraps left over from Rivlin's cashier check. Eventually, Walsh wired money twice for a total of $30,000 and then cut off all contact. And again, I think that was... Anna's influence because Rivlin got Anna involved and I don't think Anna knew that what Brian was up to. Rivlin called the cops and Brian Walsh was indicted in October 2018. Some people, including Rivlin, think Anna was involved in all this. I say she was too busy to be paying attention much. The evidence evidence they cite is that Brian used her eBay account and she made contact with Rivlin. Brian has a history of using other people's devices, as you'll see, and Rivlin actually made contact with her when he couldn't get Brian to respond. And I'm going to say Anna was not in on the Warhol fraud. The FBI did investigate her, but never brought any charges against her. And I think they would have if they could, because Brian was so slippery. They needed. I don't think she was. And I think that maybe Rivlin knew it, too, and that he. You right. Know. He brought a class action suit and named her. But I think, again, it's a matter yes. of. If you can't get Brian, she's the one with the job. She's the one with all the assets. She's got she the money. Property. Yeah. As I said, the FBI did investigate her, but they never brought any charges. The charges against Brian determined that the amount of losses that they knew about from the scam were $475,000 when Rivlin's and victims two and three losses were added up. When victim four, the dentist, saw a news story about the case, he wondered if he too had been ripped <laughs> off and he Duh. contacted Walsh. Walsh paid him back his $23,000, or rather, Walsh's mother paid $23,000. Prosecutor Nathan Mendel later wrote that the effect on victims went beyond just money. Victim two's family had seen the paintings as an investment. This was their retirement money. They lost more than a quarter of a million dollars, thanks to Brian Walsh. Victim three, the person in France, had convinced his father to invest his retirement savings, which was entirely lost, and the two are now estranged. Victim three is attempting to pay his father back the $145,000, but he does not have a high-paying job, so it's going to take him the rest of his life. 
Prosecutor Mandel, who wrote a really nicely written affidavit in 2021 talking about the importance of art and art fraud that, because this is long, I'm not going to go into here, but I will put it on our website, called the fraud dangerous, bold, and harmful, devious, complicated, and planned. Mandel wrote, Walsh committed this crime over many years from 2011 through 2016. He traveled to multiple countries. He enlisted multiple artists to prepare fake paintings with multiple lies. He involved private galleries, auction houses, and even eBay in his scheme. He manipulated and stole from people who trusted him, welcomed him into their homes, and considered him a close friend. He crafted complicated stories and lies about the paintings to make the fraudulent sales believable. Walsh proved so successful, in fact, that the FBI has not yet recovered the artwork, despite an investigation of several years and the defendant's guilty pleas. So when people say he was convicted of fraud for selling two Andy Warhol paintings for $80,000, that's what they're really talking about. A little different. And by the way, victim two's family has not gotten that art back. Oh, do they know where it is? No, I just said the FBI has not recovered it despite an investigation. No, Uh, they have no clue. I'm sure if he sold it, he sold it on the cheap and got money that he blew. In 2016, while Walsh's fraud case was just being detected, Brian Walsh embarked on another big con with a familiar subject, his father, Thomas Walsh. uh, Tom Walsh made no secret about how hurt he'd been by Brian ripping him off for $800,000 years before. It doesn't appear Tom ever brought criminal charges. Maybe they only had a verbal agreement. Who knows? But his feelings about it were not a secret. Many people are aware of the stolen money from the house in Lenox. Jeff Warnstein, Tom's longtime friend, said in an affidavit, it was not a secret in any way. After the theft of the money from the Lenox house and Tom's subsequent recognition that it had been Brian's deliberate plot, I had to advise our friends not to inquire about Brian when they came to visit, since it was a source of pain for Tom, unquote. And um, Jeff and Tom had owned property together and lived together. I don't think they were a couple. I think they were just friends. Spent a lot of time together. In 2015 or so, Brian's mother, Diana, contacted Tom in an attempt to mend fences between her ex-husband and only son. Tom told her he wasn't interested. Then Brian started calling. According to Jeff Ornstein, Tom told Brian, you're my son and I will always hope for the best for you, but I do not want to re-engage. If I did, I know that I would be letting mayhem back into my life and I can't have that, unquote. Wow. Around the same time, Tom had a stroke. Ornstein got a call from a friend at the hospital to tell him about it and immediately went to Tom's side. I found him alert, though having difficulty finding words, but not having trouble expressing his thoughts, Ornstein said. He asked Tom if he wanted him to call Diana or Brian and have them come to the hospital. Tom was emphatic. No. Tom also developed heart trouble around this time. It didn't keep him from traveling, though. He spent about half the year in Montserrat at a house he co-owned with friend Fred Pescator and the other half, Oceanfront Home in Hull, Massachusetts, that he bought around 2017. Ornstein, a Boston hotel designer who owned a major interior design business, designed the interior renovation for Tom of the Hull House. The walls of the home had artwork including Dali and Miro, Oriental rugs, Merino glass from Italy, and other mementos from Tom's travels around the world. In May 2016, Tom wrote a will. His major beneficiary (laughs) was his sister Barbara, who'd spent most of her life caring for others rather than making money and lived in subsidized housing in Florida. She could really use the money. 
His executor was his nephew, Andrew Walsh, the son of one of his brothers. Tom and Andrew had become close over the years. Tom left nothing to either of his brothers or to huh. Brian. In the will, Tom said, I leave my son, Brian R. Walsh, my best wishes, <laughs> but nothing else. In July 2016, Brian's first son was born. He and Anna named him Thomas Moorcroft Walsh IV, which I can confidently speculate is just another piece of the con on Brian's name. Yeah. The name. Tom died in India on September 21st, 2018. Ornstein and Pescator were his emergency contacts, so they were called. Ornstein immediately let Diana, Tom's ex-wife, know. Her brother Shane was there when he called. He said they both sobbed uncontrollably. It was up to Diana to tell Brian his father had died. About four hours later, Ornstein got a text from Brian. He could not have been more businesslike, Ornstein said. There was no suggestion of any sort of a sense of loss or bereavement. Brian said he needed to get into Tom's house in Hull to get paperwork required by the embassy to get Tom's body out of India. Yeah, Tom had right. apparently had a heart attack. He was like at the uh, British Airlines ticket counter in the airport. And Ornstein had keys to the house in Hull because he was helping with the interior renovation, but didn't have them with him. So he called the contractor who did have keys and the two went to the house to find the paperwork Brian said he needed, as well as to find an extra set of keys for Brian. While there, Ornstein saw Tom's will, dated May 1st, 2016, on top of a file cabinet. Ornstein, thinking ahead, left the will where it was, but took photos of every page with his cell phone. He clearly saw that Brian was not to inherit anything, which he already knew about since Tom had talked to him about it several times. When Ornstein texted Brian to tell him he'd left keys under the doormat for him, he didn't tell him he saw the will and that Brian wasn't getting anything because he felt kind of bad for Brian, even though he knew (laughs) what Brian was like. Ornstein also tried to get hold of the executor, Tom's nephew, Andrew Walsh, but the number he had for him was a bad one and he couldn't reach him. Brian Walsh did not tell Andrew or any of Tom's siblings, nephews and nieces that Tom had died. In fact, Andrew, the executor, didn't find out Tom had died until May 2019, Wow! more than seven months later. Unable to reach Tom after repeatedly trying, Andrew's wife finally urged him to contact Ornstein. By then, Brian had destroyed the will, got himself appointed executor in December 2018, spent most of Tom's money, had an estate sale selling off Tom's artwork and other valuable furniture and pieces, and was in the process of selling the house in Hull. So the whole thing ended up in probate court. Oh, my God. Brian, in a lengthy affidavit filed in November 2019 in Plymouth Probate Court, had quite a story to tell. It's lengthy, so I'll condense it here. (laughs) Brian says that he and his son, Thomas Moorcroft Walsh IV, every time he mentions the kid, he has his entire name like that. Of course. um, Are the only two legal heirs to Tom's estate. His second son, William Delano Walsh III, who's named after Tom's brother, was born after Tom died. Because Brian claimed there was no will and he was Tom's only child, he had the rights to the house in Hull, which he said was worth $850. Oh, there was no will. Right. He destroyed it. He said there was no will. Well, there was. Technically, there was no will. Right. got rid of it. That's right. He had Uh, Anyway, he said he had the rights to the house in Hull, which he said was worth $850,000, and his father's half of the house, Montserrat, which his father owned with Fred Pescator, which Brian said was worth $250,000. Brian said when he heard his father had died, he and Anna were on their way to close on a house in Marblehead, a Massachusetts North Shore that had an in-law apartment. 
Ryan, with much elaboration, tells a story that his father's failing health had prompted Tom to agree to live with Brian and his family. Brian wrote that in March 2017, we had a long conversation about our relationship. And it was the first time we had spoken candidly since a family therapy session in 1996. He said that Tom was worried about how long he could live without constant care. My wife and I began making plans for him to spend his golden years with us and his grandchildren. Yeah, right. He said his father agreed. We had a good conversation that evening. He apologized for leaving me when I was eight for his alternative lifestyle. He said, I was the father. I should have done more. I told him that I was sorry that I had been angry about his new lifestyle and how it took him away from me, how he spent more time with his partners than his only son. He said that I had the right to be angry and that he was glad that we could be together now. He also thanked me for sharing my son with him so freely. Brian said he and his father had started speaking regularly again after the birth of Thomas Moorcroft Walsh IV on July 19th, 2016. He also said his father had great difficulty reading and writing or signing documents because of his stroke. Brian used this phrase brain damage several times and says there's no way Tom could have written or signed a will in 2016, saying it would have been medically impossible for him to write or sign it. He said they continued to make arrangements for Tom's future and even talked about getting a boat together. Brian listed the people who he claimed told him they didn't know if there was a will or executor. Ornstein, Tom's friend Fred Pescator, a doctor friend from the hospital Timothy Lynch, a doctor Martin Samuels, who was Tom's healthcare proxy, and Dr. Louis Sadarsky. He said Dr. Lynch told him that Sadarsky told Lynch they should contact Brian about Tom's affairs. Sadarsky, it turns out, was a witness to the will. Mm-hmm. Um, but when that was brought to Brian's attention, he said, if Sadarsky knew Andrew Walsh was the executor, he shouldn't have allowed Lynch to contact me with misinformation. And one of the laughable ironies of the whole thing, Brian Walsh speculated the will and his father's signature were forgeries. <laughs> he also claimed that after his father died, Ornstein contacted him and he had gone to my father's house without my permission or knowledge, left a key to the back door under a mat for me to enter the house. At no time did we discuss him going to my father's house. And it is odd that he went when he knew I didn't need any help getting into the house. I didn't want to make a big deal about it. And it seemed that Jeffrey was trying to help in his own misdirected way. He goes into lengthy detail about his attempts to find a will and also a very lengthy story about how that winter after his father died, the pipes burst in the house and hall, destroying many documents and ruining much of his father's belongings. He claimed he had to spend a lot of money to repair the house and then sell off the few artifacts that weren't lost to the flooding. He finished with, our estrangement had nothing to do with money, but had to do with his friendship with Jeffrey Bryce Ornstein and others (laughs) of that alternative lifestyle, specifically how it affected my time with my father over the course of our lives. And as to any criminal allegations against himself, Brian wrote, I am more than confident that I will be vindicated before this matter is set for trial because he had been indicted shortly before that on the fraud charges. One thing I haven't mentioned yet is when sociopaths and psychopaths lie, I just um, heard this somewhere. It's not so much that they believe their lies. They're so narcissistic. They expect everyone else to believe their lies. Yes. They're the ones saying this. Tom's friends, though, were not having any of it. Good. Ornstein had saved the text from when Tom died, fully showing Brian wanted to get into the house and didn't have a key. And that's why Ornstein went over there and left a key and that all that shit was lies. When Brian had an estate sale, 
Of all the stuff in the Hull House in January 2019, he posted dozens of photos online. (laughs) They're in one of the affidavits, and I'll put it on our website, that showed there was no damage to the house and artifacts, that all that was a lie. Ornstein and Pescatore were scathing in their affidavits responding to Brian's, and I'll post those too, but here are some excerpts from Ornstein. The idea that Tom would live with Brian, his wife, and two young children strains all credibility and is totally absurd. Tom was an extremely independent person who valued his personal time. Living with two babies would never in a million years be an idea that Tom would consider. I was in constant contact with Tom from his first major heart operation to the week before he left for India. Tom never, ever suggested he was convinced he couldn't live without constant care. Even suggesting anything like this to Tom would offend his independent sensibilities. Anyone who knew Tom at all would wholeheartedly agree that the allegation that Tom stated, I was the father, I should have done more, would never have left Tom's lips. (laughs) It is entirely uncharacteristic of Tom's personality and thoughts on his family, life, and role. I have known Brian since approximately age 13 or so. Brian also spent a large amount of time with Tom and his West Newton Brownstone and was a frequent visitor to our ski house and our beach house, both with his friends and alone. Brian was also a roommate of mine in my share apartment in Manhattan. Brian never suggested in any manner that he was angry, either in spoken word or in demeanor about Tom's quote unquote lifestyle. Tom also never would have stated that Brian, quote, had the right to be angry, unquote, as Tom was neither ashamed nor troubled by leaving his family, which by all accounts was a severely dysfunctional and hostile environment. Brian states that he was abandoned by Tom, who left him to spend more time with his partners than his only son. This is just erroneous. Tom never had any partners. The idea of Tom buying a boat is absurd and laughable. Tom hated boats. (laughs) Tom's impairment was limited to recognizing symbols and had nothing to do with not thinking coherently. He was totally cognizant of his affairs and actively taking on hobbies and projects. I did not feel it was my place to inform Brian of his father's will, which Brian very clearly would have known would not favor him, as I suspected he would would learn soon enough. There were several long-term close friends who witnessed the will, and the will speaks for itself. The will is consistent with our many conversations over the years and Tom's recognition of Brian's betrayal. Brian is not a trustworthy person, and his affidavit is based on lies and misrepresentations. He completely crafted fabrications and misrepresented reality to suit his needs, which are consistent with his pattern of approaching Tom's money, which he had skillfully done in the past. Brian barely had any relationship with his father, and his motives for reaching out after disappearing for over a decade is highly suspect, to say the least. Tom was always clear about why he disinherited Brian. I never saw or learned of any change in Tom's strong conviction of disownment right up to when he left for India. From Fred Pescator, his affidavit, Fred says, Tom openly discussed Brian and his grandchildren with me often. Tom had mentioned that another grandson was on the way, and he outright stated that, like his son and his prior grandson, he wanted nothing to do with new offspring. Wow. Tom was always clear that he did not want his son Brian to inherit anything from him. I am 100% confident that Tom never, and never is in all caps, would have lived with Brian. Tom and I discussed his future often. Tom was clear about his future and his expectations about his future. They never once included Brian in any manner. Brian's statements regarding Tom and his medical condition are outright lies. Tom was able to travel to and from Montserrat on his own and did spend significant time in Montserrat after his stroke and on many occasions he did so alone. 
Tom was chronically ill. However, he was able to function perfectly fine with his medication. I am fully aware of Tom's long conversation with Brian in which they discussed many manners. Tom discussed it with me and it was very clear that nothing changed with the conversation and he was still not going to add Brian to his estate planning. Tom saw the conversation as yet another way that Brian was seeking money and trying to manipulate Tom into changing his will. Brian stating that Tom was worried about his future is another blatant lie. That was not Tom's style. Tom never once mentioned being worried about his future or his health. He was a pragmatist. I do not know the Tom that Brian is describing in terms of Tom wanting to spend his golden years with Brian and his family. First and foremost, Tom would never speak in such terms. And more importantly, Tom would have wanted absolutely no part of living with Brian and his family. <laughs> Tom would never, ever have stated that he was sorry he left for an, a, quote, alternative lifestyle, unquote. Those words would never have come out of Tom's mouth. And I have no idea what, who Brian is referring to when he states Tom had a partner in his alternative lifestyle. Tom did not have a partner and Tom never wanted to spend any time with Brian or Brian's offspring. Wow. Tom did have difficulty reading and writing, but he improved constantly. The writing never fully came back, but he certainly could sign a document, including the last will and testament that he executed on May 1st, 2016, in which he disinherited Brian. Tom remained sharp as a tack, and he knew everything that was going on at all times. Tom never once mentioned brain damage. I have hundreds of emails between Tom and myself and remain ready to produce such documents if requested to do so. Tom despised owning a boat. He never would have wanted one. Tom never would have lived with Brian under any circumstance. <laughs> if Tom had ever needed help, he was well aware that his friends would assist him in any manner. I personally spoke with Dr. Martin Samuels, who said, Brian is an evil person and capable of just about anything, and I want nothing to do with this, so please do not involve me. Brian's statement wow. that Dr. Louis Sadarsky said he knew nothing about a will is another blatant lie, as Lou was a witness to Tom's will. He calls Brian's assertions about Tom's condition and abilities blatant and obscene lies. Pescator, who was named to Tom's will, said he filed his claim directly with probate court instead of discussing it with Brian. As I wanted no contact with nor communication with Brian, who I knew from Tom to be a felon and a sociopath. Mm. As far as Brian saying his estrangement with Tom had nothing to do with money, Pescator says, Brian and Tom's estrangement had everything to do with money. Brian stole money from Tom and swindled him out of almost $1 million. Their estrangement had nothing to do with Tom's, quote, alternative lifestyle, unquote, but rather all to do with Brian being a sociopath. Brian was friends with many of those in the alternative lifestyle. I even went on a trip to China with Brian and Tom and my partner at the time. I witnessed firsthand what Brian was capable of. I saw Brian attempt to smuggle out antiquities from China. <laughs> When Brian was confronted, he picked up a stanchion and literally attempted to kill four or five guards that had come to talk to him about his crime. Brian is not only a sociopath, but also a very angry and physically violent person. Oh. I want nothing to do with him, but will stand up for my friend Tom's rights and will not let his memory be the pack of lies from Brian. And all that affidavit stuff was in November 2019. Wow. Brian Walsh had been appointed personal representative or executor in December 2018 after he told the probate court there was no will. Legally, he was supposed to provide an inventory of assets within three months, which, of course, he didn't do. <sighs> On July 17, 2019, Brian was removed as executor and Andrew Walsh had been appointed temporarily. At that point, Brian was supposed to provide an account of what he'd done with the assets of the estate, which, of course, he did not. 
On September 19, 2019, Walsh in court objected to Andrew's appointment. The court didn't buy it. In February 2020, the probate judge admitted the cell phone copy of the will as the legal document and appointed Andrew Walsh as personal representative officially, removing the temporary notation. (laughs) Andrew petitioned the court for an inventory and account, which were already required by law, but hadn't been provided by Brian. A constable attempted to serve Brian Walsh with a petition at the address he'd reported to probation as required for his fraud charges, but the constable couldn't nail Brian down. The court then issued an order requiring Brian to provide the inventory and account, but he had yet to do it. Among assets Brian liquidated by spring 2019 were more than $100,000 from Tom's bank accounts. <sighs> he sold paintings by Joan Miro and Dolly, Oriental Rugs, Murano glass, Asian art, pottery, and a car. As of this writing, as of this podcast, that still hasn't been squared away because Brian has yet to submit the assets and the money he made off of them. Chapter three, a marriage, quote, under stress, unquote. After Anna disappeared in January, friends told media the marriage was under stress because of Anna working out of town. Right. As you've probably figured out by now, Anna is not the one responsible for the stress in the marriage, and working out of town is the least of their problems. In April 2021, Brian Walsh pleaded guilty to wire fraud, interstate transportation for a scheme to defraud an unlawful monetary transaction, and that was all for the Warhol fraud. The plea deal allowed him to have supervised release, as well as pay fines, restitution, and forfeiture. He also agreed to- going to. I know. He also agreed to either return the art or pay for it to victim two's family. Actual sentencing after an investigation of his assets and more was scheduled for later in the year. But as part of pre-sentencing probation, he was on monitored house arrest. This didn't mean he had an ankle monitor GPS, but had to weekly report where he'd be going that week and have it approved beforehand and only go where he was told he was allowed to when he was allowed to. The only things he was allowed to leave the house for were bringing the kids to school and bringing his mother to the doctor and things like that. He also had to report his assets to the probation department since he was required to pay restitution of almost half a million dollars. It looked like he was going to get the most lenient sentence possible because of his plea deal with Hmm. no prison time, even though prosecution had initially asked for 30 months in prison. Brian was helped by heartfelt pleas from his wife, mother, mother mother-in-law, and even his sister-in-law. All claimed as he did himself that he was rehabilitated. He was a stay-at-home dad for his three boys and the founder of some bullshit nonprofit leadership organization. So supposedly was employed in doing good works. (laughs) And I say, right, we haven't heard about that job since. And you have to wonder who got ripped off if he was running that. No shit. He even leapt in and helped with his mother-in-law when, visiting from Serbia, she suffered an aneurysm while at their home, and his quick 911 calling or whatever saved her life. Anna also said he was a victim of emotional abuse as a child. Quote, he was told he was a loser, that his parents <laughs> should not have had him, that he had no chance of making anything of himself well, in life, and that he was a lost cause. And I assume that's what he told Anna. We now know the truth. I want to point out that many sociopaths and psychopaths say things like this, and I'm not sure why people always take it at face value from people who lie about every single goddamn thing, (laughs) falsely portraying themselves as the victim, and everything is always someone else's fault. And I'm not necessarily speaking so much about Anna, who was trying to hold her household together, and like everyone else was being manipulated by him, 
but by the news outlets that report this is fact when he's been established as a guy who can't tell the truth. I know. Literally when his life depends on it. This is the same time that Brian unrolled the line of bullshit I opened the episode with. I have created a contract for myself, quote, <laughs> I am an honest, courageous, loving leader, unquote. I repeat this contract to myself on a daily basis. I train every day on 100% integrity, 100% of the time, unquote. <laughs> ha. But in fall 2021, the court bought the bullshit and prepared to move forward. By summer 2022, the U.S. attorney still hadn't signed off on the plea deal for the fraud charge as they waited for the probate court to finish with Tom's estate. The U.S. attorney wasn't aware that Brian had ripped the estate off. They just wanted to know if Brian was going to get any asset that could be used toward restitution. He'd reported to probation that he wasn't getting anything from his father's <laughs> estate. Technically, that was true, but we all know what really happened. In June 2022, U.S. Attorney Rachel Rowlands wrote, the court was moments away from pronouncing sentence, a non-imprisonment sentence, on the defendant Brian R. Walsh. But then they found out he'd obstructed justice. Hmm. Rowlands wrote, at the prior hearing, the court balanced the serious and complicated nature of the defendant's crimes, their harm to the victims, and the need to deter other potential fraudsters, among other factors, against the defendant's efforts at rehabilitation and the effect incarceration would have on his family. In the government's view, the facts uncovered by its investigation cast doubt on the defendant's rehabilitation, which in turn alters the balance noted by the court. In other words, he was a lying liar and they just found out. Mm -hmm. Brian was supposed to report all his assets, including those of his household, to probation because he was required to make restitution, which he hadn't even begun to make a dent in. But of course, he lied. And that's not even counting the stuff with his father's will, which I said the court wasn't even aware of at this point. He'd overlooked the half million dollars his mother had funneled to him since his arrest, including $146,000 between June and December 2021, the court found. Rollins points out that the amount he got from his mother exceeds what he owed his victims for restitution. He also didn't list assets owned by Anna or share by both of them, including two IRA accounts with Fidelity, including one to which Walsh himself had contributed $91,000, a 2014 Fiat, and a 2015 Maserati, several pieces of real estate. Then the court had found out about the real issues with Tom Walsh's estate. <laughs> Rollins pointed out that one reason there'd been no judgment by the probate court on Walsh's will is that Brian had not provided a required inventory to the probate court or accounting of what he did with the assets of the estate while they were under his control, Rollins said. And it appears that the defendant did receive money and assets from the estate mm -hmm. to which he was not entitled and which he did not report to probation. He was not legally entitled to them and this likely committed fraud and embezzlement, unquote. Duh. She continued, even if the court does not conclude that an enhancement for obstruction applies because the defendant provided materially false information to probation or because he committed an offense while under supervision, such as false statements, fraud, and embezzlement, this new information is troubling. At best, the defendant painted a misleading picture of his financial situation, which was relevant to the determination of his ability to pay a fine or orders of restitution. Even more importantly, the defendant's actions while the case was pending and he was under the court supervision refute the defendant's contention that he is truly rehabilitated 
and therefore did not need a sentence of imprisonment. In this case, both the defendant's conviction and his actions, while under supervision, call for a sentence of imprisonment. The prosecution was now asking for 30 months in prison, followed by 36 months supervised release, restitution, and a full accounting of the Tom Walsh assets that Brian had liquidated <laughs> during his months as executor. By December 2022, that accounting still hadn't come. And just because I know it's confusing, this U.S. District Court action was on the Andy Warhol fraud charges. And they had just found out about the whole thing going on in probate court about Tom's will. Neither of these have been resolved because Brian is simply refusing and there doesn't seem to be any kind of recourse or well maybe they could throw him in jail i don't know i know uh well too bad they didn't well he's there now a daily mail story is typical of the way anna and brian's marriage is being depicted in the media delmi mungia a friend of anna's said the marriage suffered a lot of stress the story says Mungia painted a domestic picture of the Walshes as one where the missing woman worked long hours at her high-powered job at an exclusive real estate agency in Washington, D.C., while her husband stayed at home doing chores. In the same story, Anna's friend Pamela Barty said, Imagine the dynamics here. You've got a very high-powered woman, super-driven, beautiful, successful, radiant, who's out there doing her thing, and then you've got somebody at home who is facing federal charges looking after the kids, dealing with all these things, and prior psychological issues. Would that create any tension in the marriage, even indirectly? Potentially. It's something to think about. It's something to think about when you're thinking about motives. And I just want to say people are oversimplifying this. I can't stress enough. I think the biggest tension in the marriage is Brian being a sociopath, a liar, and a con man. I shudder to think how much he's conned Anna and her family out of that we'll never know about. On December 25th, Christmas Day, Anna Walsh texted her mother, Milanka Lubchik, who was at home in Serbia. Mama, can you please come tomorrow? Her mother told her, Aunt she, I cannot get ready for tomorrow. Let's try day after tomorrow. She asked her why it was so urgent. I mean, Serbia is, what, 10,000 miles from Massachusetts or something? And Anna replied that she and Brian weren't getting along about the kids, where the kids would spend time, whether in Massachusetts or Washington. And I think Anna was downplaying whatever the conflict was. And did he have, he had to, because of the ongoing court thing, stay in Massachusetts? Okay. Lubchick ended up not coming to visit. Obviously, getting an international flight together on short notice isn't easy. She told her daughter she'd come in January and stay for two months. Anna replied that Brian had plans for February. Some media says Anna told her that she and Brian planned to go to Serbia in February. I don't know how that would be possible with his home arrest. Others say she didn't elaborate on the plans. Lubchik said it was uncharacteristic of Anna to make a request like, Mama, come visit me right now. But she put it down to the stress of the marriage and Anna's long commute to Washington, D.C. After Christmas, Anna went back to Washington for a few days to come back for the New Year's weekend. So uh, she was in Washington on December 27th. Brian Googled on his son's iPad, what's the best state to divorce for a man? (laughs) On his son's iPad. Yeah, well, because he... I know. 
And some of the final photos of Anna posted on Instagram between Christmas and New Year, she's not wearing her wedding ring. Uh Around midnight on New Year's Eve, Anna tried calling her mother, but her mother didn't pick up. She tried again around 1 a.m. and then tried her older sister, who also didn't pick up. Friend Jem Mutlu said that on New Year's Eve, there was absolutely no indication that any modicum of a tragedy, disappearance, or anything else could have happened that night. As of this episode, no body has been found. And from the investigation so far, it seems like one won't be. Decades ago, a murder charge without a body was a rarity. It's easy to understand why. It's hard to prove someone is dead when there's no body to prove it. That's all changed, though, thanks to technology. I've seen some articles that refer to Brian Walsh as a genius. (laughs) I don't give him that kind of credit. He's just super focused, like every psychopath is, on getting what he wants. And also, he can manipulate people, and people let him get what he wants but even the criminal who fancies himself the smartest guy in the room is going to get tripped up and it's my belief from a lot of research that i've done narcissists are more likely than others to make big mistakes they not only think they're smarter than everyone else but they can't think beyond their sphere to consider how others may look at the world around them and find evidence the way others may see things differently than they do You'd think Brian would have learned something after his lies about his father's will were easily uncovered (laughs) through other people's texts and evidence, but I don't think guys like him learn much from their mistakes. While having a body is the gold standard, it verifies someone is dead beyond a shadow of a doubt and also can tell investigators how death occurred in a lot of cases and give other clues, but you can still make a body disappear and still leave a robust body of evidence for police to follow with no actual body. Mm One telling clue, on January 1st and 2nd, Anna's cell phone pinged at their Cohasset home after she had supposedly gone to Washington, Mm -hmm. though no outgoing calls were made. The final ping was at 3.14 a.m. January 2nd, and then it was turned off. Brian also left a nice trail of his thought and action process on Thomas Moorcraft Walsh IV's iPad (laughs) that shows Anna was probably dead within hours into 2023. Brian's Google searches on his son's iPad tell the story. So let's go through them. Mm-hmm. January 1st, 4.55 a.m. How long before a body starts to smell? Mm. 4.58 a.m. How to stop a body from decomposing? Mm. 5.20 a.m. How to embalm a body? Mm. 5.47 a.m. 10 ways to dispose of a dead body if you really need to. 6.25 a.m. <laughs> How long for someone to be missing to inherit? (sighs) 6.34 a.m. Can you throw away body parts? 9.29 a.m. What does formaldehyde do? 9.34 a.m. How long does DNA last? 9.59 a.m. Can identification be made on partial remains? 11.34 a.m. Dismemberment and the best ways to dispose of a body. 11.44 a.m. How to clean blood from wooden floor. 11.56 a.m., luminol to detect blood. 1.08 p.m., what happens when you put body parts in ammonia? 1.21 p.m., is it better to throw crime scene clothes away or wash them? On January 2nd, he Googled. 12.45 p.m., hacksaw best tool to dismember. 1.10 p.m., can you be charged with murder without a body? 1.14 p.m., can you identify a body with broken teeth? I know he he obviously doesn't watch Dateline or listen. to. Does he understand what DNA is? On January 3rd, he Googled 102 p.m. 
What happens to hair on a dead body? 1.13 p.m. What is the rate of decomposition of a body found in a plastic bag compared to on a surface in the woods? 1.20 p.m. Can baking soda make a body smell good? I should, I'm sorry, everybody, to laugh. It's just so ridiculous. I know. The Google searches Wernal Walsh was doing in the three days between when Anna was last seen and when police knocked at Walsh's door looking for her. As I said earlier, Brian Walsh had to get approval before he left his home. For the week beginning January 1st, he got approval to drop the kids off at school between 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. every day and pick them up between 3.15 and 6.45 p.m., which I think is pretty fucking lenient given their ages were 6, 4, and 2. I know. Why are you picking a kid that age up at 6.45 p.m.? And Brian took that to mean that he had that entire window to be out of the Especially when he's a house maker, homemaker. Right, exactly. He doesn't have a job. Right. He'd also gotten approval to drive his mother home to Swampscott between 3 and 9 p.m. on January 1st. She'd been staying with them after cataract surgery, apparently. But, he said, she had recovered quicker than expected and had driven herself home a few days before. He figured, since he already had approval, Uh, he'd use the time and run some errands for her. mm -hmm. He said he didn't have his cell phone. One of the kids must have been playing with it and misplaced it. He had found it the next day under a pillow on the couch or something. So he got a little lost on the way to Swamp Scott, and it took about 90 minutes to get there, not the hour it normally would. He said he'd left for there around four, and when he got there, he visited with his mother for about 15 minutes and then went to Whole Foods and CVS to do some shopping for her. Investigators, though, could not find him, though they looked at hours of surveillance video from both stores. Since there was no school January 2nd because of the New Year's holiday, he opted to use the time that he had been allotted to take the children to school to take Thomas Moorcraft Walsh IV for ice cream <laughs> at a juice bar in Norwell, Mass. That That's morning, not during, how it works. I know, I know. During the school time approval, while a babysitter watched the two younger boys. And can I just say, just like you mentioned, it just shows that no matter what the situation, a guy like him will bend the rules any way he can, basically just for the hell of it. Anyway, he did take his kids to get a smoothie at Press Bar in Norwell. It was one of the few things Brian Walsh told the truth about to police. What he didn't tell the police is that during the allotted school pickup time later that day, he went to Home Depot in Rockland wearing a (laughs) surgical mask and gloves and bought $450 worth of cleaning supplies with cash, including mops, a bucket, tarps, and various types of tape, among other things. Then a man fitting his description is seen on surveillance video walking up to a dumpster in an apartment complex in Abington carrying a garbage bag, which appears to be heavy by how he tosses Uh. it to the dumpster. He then goes to other locations at Abington and Brockton, disposing of items in dumpsters. How did they know to look in Abington and Brockton? Hit his cell phone with him, and it was on. That afternoon of January 4th, during approved time for shopping, Walsh bought towels, bath mats, and men's clothing at TJ Maxx and Home Goods in Norwell and squeegees in a trash can at Lowe's. Later that evening, the Cohasa officers went to Walsh's house for the well-being check on January 4th, Well, there, they noticed that the seats were down in the back of his Volvo, that a plastic liner was laid in the car, that there was dirt on the floor mats. The car's carpet had fresh vacuum streaks. They'd later find blood in the car. Mm -hmm. On January 5th, Brian's cell phone shows he went to a dumpster at his mother's apartment complex in Swampscott around 9.30 a.m. Also that day, Cohasset police announced that Anna Walsh was missing. They searched the area around her house and in the neighborhood with sniffer dogs, as well Mm -hmm. as her home in Washington, D.C., but they found no trace of her. 
The search continued the next day, January 6th. Also, a fire broke out in the Walsh's old house in Cohasset that Anna had sold in March. It turned out and started near damaged piping close to a natural gas fireplace insert and isn't suspicious. Cohasset Police Chief William Quickly said it was a very strange coincidence. It is. A- uh, it was, and if they still owned the house, I think somehow Brian did it to get the insurance money, but they didn't somehow own the house. And I had this theory, I could be, t- I'm probably totally wrong, but this is just my mystery writer mind working, that I wonder if Brian, when they still owned the house, did something, hoping there'd be a fire and it would burn oh, down. Oh, yeah. But it didn't, didn't happen until now, but who knows? That would be interesting. Yeah. On January 7th, the search outside in the neighborhood continued through the day with nothing found. Massachusetts State Police said that the search would be called off unless they had reason to start it up again. At 9 a.m. the next day, January 8th, the search inside the Walsh's house began, and they also searched more closely around the house. They found blood and two knives, one of which was bloody and damaged in the home, investigators said. They also were seen taking a large heavy-duty tarp and plastic liners that were bought at Home Depot out of the house. (laughs) And Brian Walsh was arrested on charges he misled a police investigation. Hmm. At his arraignment on January 9th, bail was set at $500,000. In the following days, police searched a transfer station. For those of you who don't know, that's a place in a town or a city where people take their garbage, where it's then taken away to a dump. They searched the transfer station in Peabody, and took away 10 garbage bags. Police later said that in them they found towels, rags, slippers, tape, a Tyvek suit, gloves, cleaning agents, carpets, rugs, hunter boots that looked just like the ones Anna Walsh was last seen wearing, part of a necklace similar to one she was wearing and is seen on her in photos, her COVID-19 vaccine card, a hacksaw, a hatchet, and some cutting shears. Much of this has blood on it, and DNA from both Brian and Anna Walsh is on slippers and the Tyvek suit, and her DNA is on tissues that were in the bags. On January 17th, Brian Walsh was charged with murder. Mm -hmm. His next court appearance is February 9th. I just want to say, too, I hear this a lot with cases where a guy is charged with murdering his wife who has quote unquote, no history of violence or history of domestic violence. So he wasn't a violent person, but a lot of these murders are not, I mean, murder is a violent act. I've probably said this before because it sounds familiar to me, but they're not doing it out of violence. They're doing it because they do not want that person there. They have to eliminate them. They have to eliminate them. And if he did kill her, because, you know, obviously he hasn't been- Allegedly. I don't know if it was a thing where they got into an argument and he just, I don't want to say snapped because they don't snap, but he did it. Or if he planned, if he planned, he didn't plan well. Maybe he was planning to do it, but it happened before, you know, it happened before he planned to. He obviously Googling what's the best state to get a divorce in. Probably found out Massachusetts isn't one and (laughs) that she held most of the assets and that no matter what happened, if they divorced, his golden goose was going away and he'd be back in the shit. Not that he wasn't already. I remember reading in articles that police said the Warhol fraud, which is the only thing people kind of knew about him, yeah. had nothing to do with her disappearance or possible murder. And I was like, technically they don't, but they both are just part of a pattern. 
that he does what he wants to get what he wants. He doesn't care who he hurts. He seems incapable of leading any kind of honest life. She was probably getting fed up with it. So you see a lot of these women trying to forge this like a normal life with this guy who is not going to give you a normal life. And it comes to a head. I wonder if she somehow, if she found out about something or she didn't fully understand, you know, all the shit he had done. And she's, you know, like he had been telling her stuff that, and she of course would believe him. Yeah. And she realized something and confronted him with it. And that's because I can't imagine he, she seemed to be standing by him and she was making all the money. Right. Well, but I could also tell either that or he had, he had, maybe he had spent a bunch of money that drained her accounts from her personality. She doesn't strike me. And from everything I read about her, and there's a lot of stuff I didn't even get in this because it was already getting too long. She's not the kind of person that's going to tell her friends her problems. Yeah. She she puts a very, up a very good front and friends said she was tense and unhappy going into the holidays. Mm. She obviously had stuff on her mind. Well, how long can he drag out this not revealing the assets and stuff from his father's estate? I know. And it makes her look bad. Yeah. If her husband's a sleazebag. Right. And I also, and I couldn't find this article and this was getting too long, but I believe I read somewhere, you know, she has a property portfolio in Massachusetts and that she had started listing the properties. And I don't know if she was liquidating and anticipating and moving to Washington, DC. And for all I know, yeah, for all anyone knows, she said to him, look, me and the kids are going to D.C. You're going to be in jail anyway, but I me, I can't keep doing this. These are my little sons. Yeah, maybe she I was wanna, making plans. You know, she loved her kids. This whole bullshit about she wouldn't call for days. I don't believe that for a minute. Remember when she first disappeared, the cops, one of the cops said, well, maybe she just needed a break and got away. And we're like, somebody with, she, that's not, Yeah. No, you don't do that. I don't know anyone that would do that. Yes. And yes. not call their kids. Right. Or if, their even sister. If they needed to, or, or their, yeah, their sister yeah, right. or even mother. If, right. Even if they, they have to get away from the kids, which she was away most of the week. So I wouldn't see that as being realistic. You're going to call your, your best friend, your well, sister, your mother. Way, she and that's called, one thing men don't seem to understand in any of these, stupid. that a woman is not gonna who needs a break she yeah. certainly isn't gonna not tell a female another female about if it. she called her mother to want her to come she said mom i want you to come right. obviously she was going through something and she would not right have not called her mother right. if she was gonna take off right i mean and right exactly and and you and i only live 70 miles from each other but if one of us texted the other and said please come here right now yeah. That would obviously signal a problem. And we only live 70 miles away. Yeah. Can you imagine you live in Serbia and she's And then saying, she tried to come. call her sister too that night. I think her sister lives in Canada. But it makes you wonder what was going on. Right. right. And, and I'm sure I, they wonder and they feel and, bad. And um the, the friend Jem Mutlu sounds like a nice guy, mm-hmm. but I don't know that he necessarily would have picked up any tension Sky. or things going on and uh, no, to tell you the truth no offense to any men that listen but there's probably not many i just don't trust a lot of men to even pick up on that kind no. of thing and also i even wonder that note written on the champagne 
if Brian wrote that. Wow, 2022, what a year. And yet we are still here and together. Let's make 2023 the best one yet. Hmm. I mean, I read about it in like the New York Post and the Daily Mail, you know, newspapers that are kind of, they had a photo of it and it's written with a Sharpie. I, you know, I have no idea what her handwriting or Brian's handwriting. I could see that being a little spin on his part. Yeah. I mean, nobody says, none of those stories have Jem saying, oh yeah, we wrote on the champagne box and stuff. And in that book, again, erased primarily strong that I mentioned constantly, there's a pattern to these guys. And I'm not going to say he was allowed to get away with it because like, for instance, his father, when he ripped his father off, boom, that was it. But it sounds like his mother's family was extremely wealthy and the mother showered him with money and Mm -hmm. stuff. And I'm not blaming the mother for anything that's happened. She has been described unflatteringly in newspaper stories, but I don't know that much about her. And she's sticking by her son, like a lot of mothers would, but it sounded like he was an indulged child. Yeah. Give the court, I mean, with COVID and everything, I know they were trying not to, but if he were like a black guy from Roxbury or something, he wouldn't even be out of jail. He would have been, and not that he would have pulled off that Warhol fraud in the first place, but he would have, his ass would have been in jail the minute. It's just like died. Elizabeth Holmes. They allowed her to be out and self report to prison and she bought a ticket to Mexico because yeah. she's pregnant. And I'm like, okay, but there's probably a lot of pregnant women that get thrown in jail. There's and a shitload like, yeah, of pregnant when women. You, when you're going to have your baby, then we'll. We'll bring you over to the hospital and, and you can have and your baby you, while you're shackled you're gonna go to back. The, right. Even though she freaking put millions of people's lives at risk with yeah. her stupidity. There's different rules. There's different right. rules for different people. Yeah. If he had been in jail, like he should have been, then his wife would still be alive. Yes, she would. You know? And so that's the story of Brian and Thank Anna Walsh. You. That and was you can very see nice. what, like I was texting you, this is much more complicated. Yes. You know, it's great finding all these court documents because you really cannot trust what you read and even no, papers because that take stuff, somebody some of the stuff they get, people got wrong and stuff sometimes i find that someone interpreted something wrong yes. or yeah like we've seen with police reports that happened in a couple of mine and then when the person testifies they tell it's a totally yeah. different thing yeah and it's like Ugh. yeah so it is nice to have all that right yeah. so do you have an nnw yes i do <laughs> It's the Netflix, the hatchet wielding hitchhiker. It's a one episode documentary. And you know, it's funny because I don't, maybe I'm just not up on the memes and stuff and I didn't recognize this guy. It's about this guy who became a meme because he had been hitchhiking and the guy that picked him up, he ran the car into a guy and then these women came to try to assist the guy and the guy got out of his car and tried to attack the women so the hitchhiker had a hatchet with him and hit the guy in the head with the hatchet the hitchhiker who calls himself kai was interviewed shortly after the incident happened and because of his interview the way he talked and the things he said and he said smash 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 
he became like this internet sensation. So I'm going to go through the, the list yes. and then we can talk about it. Bad reenactments. No, there aren't any reenactments that I can think of. And all of this played out on TV and YouTube and everything. So narrative cliches. No, there isn't a narrator. There's people talking. I'll go through that later. The racial gender obtuseness. No, I think pretty much everyone in it is white, but all the people in it are people who are involved in the story. And Kai is white. Lack of good visuals. No, there's a lot of good visuals because, like I said, it plays out on TV. He's interviewed on TV. Then he becomes this internet sensation. So he goes on Jimmy Kimmel and he's there's they have that on there. They, you know, he just wanders around and he's a kind of a celebrity apparently. So, you know, there's a lot of video of him. Missing pieces, I'm taking a point away. Ooh. I would have liked to have more information. There's a point where Kai says he was abused as a child. They talked to his cousin who seems to back that up, but they also talked to his mother who downplays what Kai says is abuse. And they don't really explain what exactly happened. And I would have liked to know, and maybe no one knows what exactly happened, but I would like to know, was he locked in a room for right and also the way the time. cousin backs it up is kind of semi you and know the mother doesn't the mother doesn't seem like somebody that would do that but you don't know right. and also there are some other things that bother me inaccuracies and anachronisms no it's what's going on at the time there's no reenactments that are going to be wrong storytelling i'm taking a point off because again i don't think things were explained well enough they have the initial thing that made him famous. They show some other things that happen. And then at the end, something happens that I don't think is explained well enough. I would just like to have had more information. I think at the end, you're left with wondering what the hell, what the hell happened. Yes. That's how I felt. And I felt like it could have been explained better. And maybe the filmmaker wanted it to be ambiguous. I don't know, but I didn't like it. Freshness, I'm not taking off any points. Like I said, I didn't know much about him. I thought it was an interesting story. And it's the kind of thing that something that probably wouldn't have happened without the internet. Repetition, no. They do repeat a couple film clips, but they are relevant. Like when they show them on Jimmy Kimmel, they show it again a couple times and it didn't bother me. And beating the drum, no. I don't think they were beating the drum. They could have done some uh, more drum Yes, beating. yes. I feel like they could have talked some more. So I gave it an eight. It's worth watching. It's an interesting thing to watch and talk with people because the reason he appeals to people is he's he's a good looking guy and he acts like this hippy dippy, oh, you know, whatever you've done, you should be forgiven and blah, blah, blah. And it turns out he's he's not what you initially would think. And people jump to conclusions based on I, a few minutes. Well, one thing I thought was that people especially the people that like got him on Jimmy Kimmel and stuff with maybe yeah. one or two And that woman who was the Kardashian made these really snap yes. decisions about what he was like and then we're surprised when he's like pissing on the floor yeah and shit and it's almost like one of those classic stories like that carson mcculler's story, i think the heart is lonely Hunter, yeah where, the where they take somebody out of his element and make him something else yes. for their own purposes i disagree and i won't give any spoilers but there was kind of a at the end, this assertion or that the bad thing that happened 
wouldn't have happened if all this other yeah shit. And, and, and i don't know that they, i think something bad probably would have happened but we wouldn't have known about it because he wouldn't have been famous he was bad shit just waiting to happen i think that people exploited had, him yes. for their own purposes then were really clueless about their exploit although they yes and no because i think that they like the woman who was the kardashian producer or whatever and the guy from Jimmy Kimmel. The well, there was one guy out, from Jimmy that, was... that seemed more, they seemed to be like, oh, I didn't realize he was like that. But they didn't seem to blame, like say, gee, maybe I shouldn't have right. assumed he was right. like that. People see dollar signs or a way to, the whole thing made me very nervous. Like the cat in the hat used to when I was a little like kid. Like what do people think is going to happen? he likes his Beer. lifestyle yeah he clearly has some issues impulse control issues Definitely. and he's self-medicating just a lot of things about him i do not agree with his fake moral reasoning for why the thing the bad yeah, thing that no. happened I... although i feel like if he's fucked up enough and i'm not saying that he should have done what he did, but I can see him thinking it was okay, just like he thought it was okay to try to kill a guy. Well, I think that some of his stuff was an act. Yeah. I think he played to the crowd. Yes. I don't think he was as fucked up in a nutty way as he acted. I think he may have been fucked up in a violent an unhappy way more than he let up i think so too and but i also think that a lot of his behavior was was drug related too like the peeing on everything i think he was a violent person yeah he was trying to save those women that the guy was attacking but he also grooved on the violence of right and i also think that there are people who know bad things about him who either didn't speak or weren't sought out to speak on that like the friend he was supposed to be visiting yeah um, who then blew him off or whatever the night the bad thing happened and shit i think that we're just seeing these little glimpses of his life. Well, that's what I'm saying. I would have liked to have more information about his life, his childhood. His mother put him in foster care when he was 13 because she couldn't deal with him. So why? And if he was put in a room because she couldn't deal with his behavior, what was his behavior? And then I'm saying he deserved to be treated, but what kind of help did she get? And what kind of help did he get? You know, and it doesn't sound like there was much. And it sounds like there wasn't a lot of insight into what was wrong with him or what he was like. It's like, he just kind of drifted around and people said, yeah, he's this and that. But there was no like in depth. And he reminded me of either like a little kid or even like people I met when I worked for the defense attorney who knew how to put on an act or knew how to act in a certain situation, but they also sometimes couldn't control how they were acting if they got angry or something so he's all like but then like that guy the interviewer guy the first the sports news guy right who said that the young cut long interview he revealed a lot of stuff about himself but you know what they just showed on the news was and the clip that went viral was a short clip of him you know being all hippy dippy nice right and also i felt like that guy 
took a lot of stuff at face value. A lot of the problem was people made assumptions and took stuff at face value and didn't deeply look at what is this guy like. But I feel like people just made these snap decisions about him, even though everything was screaming, just leave the guy, just walk away and let it. I know he's not like a character in a skit. I don't even know what category to put this in. The whole documentary would have had to been done better to better show how people just kind of exploited him. Yes. And didn't really understand what they were doing. And they kind of say that, but it's disjointed enough that I don't think yeah, that, I, that I story felt it is was, told yeah. well. I thought it could have been a little more cohesive and also a little more uh, self-reflective. Yeah, but I do recommend it. I do. It's interesting. Like I said, it's interesting to talk about what happens to people. How the media and the internet. Right. They pick somebody up and kind of use them and then walk away and then the person is left with and people are just like oh it's that smash 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 guy and it's like but he's like more than just that one well it's just like the quote quote, north pond hermit i know who i used to fight to get our newspaper which coined the nickname to not use the nickname because it annoyed me are we caricaturizing a human being you know we needed to use it for the seo click and then quote-unquote north pond hermit one of our photographers andy malloy wrote around i think it was andy with trooper vance Mm -hmm. state trooper who used to patrol this area she's retired now and she was talking about him because she's one of the ones who arrested him and she said in that video he has a name and it's christopher knight and everybody's like oh that's super fun i'm like that's what i've been fucking saying for the past six months no wonder I don't work there anymore. Yeah. But anyway, I guess we should go. Okay. Right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Good night. S- stuff happens. I have menopause. Yeah. You're a woman. Just, you know. Yeah. I'm not cute enough anymore. I can't get I know, away with it. I know. I when I you're an old woman, for... you're just annoying and senile. I think I, I haven't been and cute And they're like, oh, that fucking old woman. 35 years. But Aww, anyway. Oh, you're cute. So we should probably go. Yeah, thanks.